live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California, which it is today. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davis, who is the uh, ace of the industry in hydraulics. All right, that's better than being the jack of the industry. So, yep. yeah. so you can give me the 10 bucks after the show. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we'll, be, we'll be good. We have a great show tonight. Thanks, we everybody, do. for tuning in. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I have a fantastic guest tonight, um, Mr. Kurt Maloney. Um, welcome to the show, Kurt. Well, thank you, Ingie. It's good to have you. Kurt and I have known each other for quite a number of years, uh, another irrigation industry veteran. Uh, for those who don't know him, let me um, introduce Kurt uh, to him, to, to, to our listening audience. And, uh, Kurt, I didn't know this. Um, but you hail from Wisconsin and attended the Kenosha Technical Institute for Hydraulic and Pneumatical Engineering. That's where you get this uh, irrigation engineering in your blood. Uh, apparently, uh, been... I was a, I was a cheesehead. <laughs> a cheesehead, yeah. I love it. <laughs> Do you have the hat, Kurt? And yeah. And and then he moved over to Colorado and got into business. Um, so I suppose that's what led you to the Toro Company initially, where you worked on uh, product management in the center pivot irrigation industry, and then for Toro in the R&D department. You've held you know a number of different titles, uh, ag marketing manager, international marketing manager, domestic residential marketing manager, a lot of marketing in there. And then later in your career, where I met you, was at Netafim, and you developed a whole new category in the landscape industry called Dripper Line, and I very vividly remember that. You created all the training materials and educational programs to teach distributors, landscape designers, and contractors how to use drip irrigation to save water and simplify installation. So today you are partnering with Jim Anschutz and Tim Young at Ag H2O in Fresno, and Jim has also been a, a guest of ours a couple of times here at the Water Zone. And you're still involved in ag training and education and market analysis, offering services to the irrigation industry as well as to farmers, which is really great. And over the last six years, you've served on the Blue Tech Valley TIE Committee and, is a and you're a volunteer with the California Energy Commission Technical Advisory Committee. But what's really important is that you're a bread baker, and I want to get into some of that bread. Yeah, how come you did, did you make some good, fresh, hot artisan <laughs> bread? I love that with some nice unsalted butter. I love that stuff. Oh, it's the best. It is the best. And you enjoy traveling and photography. So, Kurt, um, tell, tell our listening audience, how in the world did you get involved in the irrigation industry? And then tell us a little more about... Um, how broad it is. You know, we often talk about it just in terms of landscape and agriculture, but, uh, you know, especially with some of your past experience, you were very much involved with irrigation in the wastewater industry and the mining industry and the golf industry as well. So give us your take on that as well. Well, thank you, Ingie. Um, well, uh, as, you, uh, as you introduced everybody uh, to me, I did start out in the uh, hydraulic and pneumatic industry, and I went to work for a company in Rockford, Illinois, called Sunstrand, where I was hoping to build numerically controlled uh, machine tools. And mm. after three years there, I decided that the machine tool industry wasn't where I wanted to be, um, and it was because of my hydraulics I ended up there. I decided to go back to school and uh, went to the University of Colorado for business. When I graduated, 
from uh, from Colorado. It was in the early 70s. Not a time to be looking for a job. Mm. And I uh, ended up going to a small uh, ag distributorship in Denver, Colorado, uh, on an interview. And uh, uh, the guy I worked for, was going to go to work for, handed me a, uh, a valve, a water valve, and he says, how does this thing operate? And I looked at it, and I said, well, it's a solenoid valve, and I described it to him. And he said, you're the 65th person I've interviewed. You got the job because you know how the valve works. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I, I knew nothing about irrigation at that point, but um, I became hooked, and I became hooked pretty quickly. Um, it was my engineering background that intrigued me about the hydraulics of irrigation, how to move water around, how to move water around efficiently. And the next level is then how do you distribute that water? How do you put it on the ground evenly? Where does it need to go? And uh, so that was uh, 47 years ago. And uh, along the way, I... I met people like Jack Keller from University of Utah, uh, learned a lot from that. That man went to a lot of seminars, um, read a lot of books, did a lot of things. I I ended up in the irrigation industry kind of coming in through the back door, but uh, it was a, it's a great industry. It was very good to me. And, uh, it really, really helped fulfill my life. Yeah, well, you've made, you know, a huge contribution to the industry in those 47 years. You've come a long way from not knowing anything about, you know, irrigation and agriculture and landscaping to where you are today. Um, you know, you're, I, you've, you've been kind of a history buff. You were on the Irrigation Association's history um, committee for many years, and I'm a little bit, too, um, and I like you pleased to walk us through how how irrigation plays in, you know, just the history of civilization, I mean, in human technology. You know, our civilization is basically where it is today because we figured out how to, we figured out how to grow food. We figured out how to do agriculture. So agriculture and, and, of course, irrigation are closely tied. So tell us a little bit about, you know, when did this all start and how did it evolve? You know, what are the different, you know, technologies? Well, uh, irrigation is is over five thousand years old, and not an awful lot of the early stuff was uh, done uh, in and around Egypt, in parts of Africa, and places like that. That's really where uh, where irrigation started to to develop. At the same time, you ended up with the Incas and those those tribes in. South America, same kinds of need that they have. As you develop a community, you have to feed that community. And if you happen to live in an area that's uh, deficient in rainfall to uh, grow food, uh, you figure out how to route water to growing those crops. Um, in, in the United States, the earliest, the earliest 
that we know when irrigation systems and they were canal systems were developed uh, was uh, 800, 1,200 years ago, and most of that was done down in the Arizona area. And again, it's the same kind of issue. You have a you have a climate that doesn't provide water uh, or nutrients to a plant at certain times of the year. You figure out how to get water to those plants. So uh, it's long been the need to grow food. How irrigation and the technology of irrigation developed. The interesting thing is there's an, there's been offshoots of a growing food that uh, has made irrigation uh, an important component of of society. A couple of things I'll mention beyond just, if I'd like to come back to to, uh, landscape and golf business, uh, they happen to be an old passion of mine, but uh, the the mining industry uh, now uses an awful lot of irrigation techniques. Now, um, most of that work is done down in Arizona, where they take copper ore, low-grade copper ore, they pulverize that ore, build mounds of, of, uh, of, of the ore, and they put dripper line with water and sulfuric acid over the top of that mound. So water trick, trickles down through the thing. They capture the water at the other uh, uh, at the bottom, and they recover uh, copper uh, in the form of a liquid, and uh, through electrolysis, mine a couple tons of copper a day out of these copper fields that are just absolutely huge. So is, yeah. it, is it drip that operates? Uh, so it's a taloslope, essentially, right, where they put all these tailings on there, and they just run the sulfuric acid. Do they, do they spray it on with a big uh, sprinkler, or is it done through uh, drip, drip system? It's, it's done through drip systems primarily. There are some other, there are some other mi- mines that have used uh, sprinkle and, and that kind of stuff, but predominantly in the copper industry, it happens to be drip. Oh, so, uh, you can all yeah. you can also mine silver and gold in in the same way with different chemicals, and it's all taking tailings, dripping water down through those yeah. tailings, capturing the water, and through chemical or electrolysis yeah. process. Yeah, leaches out the, the heavy metal. Right, leaches out the heavy metal in the tailings, and uh, you collect yeah. it at the bottom. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. I mean, it's the same same equipment basically that we use for growing food and in our landscapes. But I, I guess there's been some minor modifications in it to make it, uh, you know, resistant to sulfuric acid or or especially in wastewater. Tell us how the the products have been a little differentiated to handle those new markets. Well, wastewater is another uh, pretty interesting. Um, uh, offshoot of, uh, of irrigation, uh, and uh, you find it an awful lot in uh, on homes, in communities, small communities, where they capture the uh, waste, send it through process, 
And so at second stage uh, water, uh, we drip it on the ground and uh, get rid of the get rid of the the water that way. Kind of the land, I think they call it land application of wastewater. So you're disseminating yeah, wastewater exactly. on the land via drip rather than sprinkler because sprinkler's up in the air and that's not um, that's not so good if it uh, is kind of stinky and it uh, affects the community around them. So drip is really a, a, a great technology for that as well, huh? Yeah. And then even in golf, how are we using drip in golf? Well, in the golf industry, um, one of the things when when you maintain a golf course, there's two places on a golf course you don't want to make a golfer mad. The <laughs> first is on the green, um, and that's because they waste more strokes on the green than any part of the course. Uh, but the second place is in sand traps. Well, one of the problems that you have is how do you water the grass next to the sand trap without getting the sand trap wet. And what's being done now is they build rings of dripper line buried underneath the underneath the turf grass uh, to keep that grass green, and they don't have to overhead sprinkle irrigate that area then. Yeah. Pretty, pretty popular. The other pretty, thing that, that's being done in, in climate... Uh, particularly on the East Coast or down through Arizona, uh, where you have electronic uh, controllers out in the uh, on the golf course, you need to ground them very well so they don't suffer from lightning strikes and those kinds of things. And they build little drip fields to help uh, the grounding rod. Uh, make good contact with the earth, and then helps protect the electronic controllers from being zapped. Uh huh. So we're drip irrigating the grounding rod. Yeah. <laughs> they they do that a lot in uh, ham radio stuff because I did not because of, I did it, not know that. Yeah, wait, wait, it, we can add another category to the list: ag, landscape, <laughs> golf, mining, wastewater, and grounding rods. <laughs> yeah. in, in ham radio, um, one of that's what's it's a re, not a requirement, but everybody has to worry about getting getting shocked on their microphones <laughs> when touching it if it isn't properly grounded. And that's the best way to uh, keep your ground rod uh, really to an earth connection. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, Kurt, I always um, you know. We think of irrigation from 5,000 years ago and the Incas and so forth, and it's all pretty much gravity-fed from the mountains and through their intricately um, carved-out stonework. I've been there, and it's amazing what they did, um, you know, pre-computer-age humans. Um, so when did it change from this gravity-flood irrigation to these more modern technologies, these pressurized irrigation technologies, the pumps and the sprinklers and the drip irrigation? When did all that happen? Well, uh, it was the late 1800s when you started to uh, have the availability of, of electricity that could operate pumps that they started to distribute uh, sprinklers, uh, uh, you know, through the air. And... Yep. Um, um, but when it really became popular here uh, in the U.S. was 
uh, in the early uh, in the early thirties when uh, Rainbird, which is a company there in Glendora, started to sell impact sprinklers. They were the first ones to sell those knocker sprinklers that. Yep. noises you hear in the morning, that kind of stuff. Um, they started building sprinklers uh, to water lemon groves over there, and the first big sale that they made was six sprinklers that was sold to the Los Angeles Country Club because they wanted to keep their grass greener. And from that, uh, Rainbird started, and then uh, by the... 40s, mid 40s, uh, the proliferation of agriculture in California. Um, they started selling impact sprinklers to grow cotton and vegetables and those kinds of things. Yep. By the 50s, uh, we started to see a development out in uh, the plains where uh, in Nebraska, Kansas, where you have undulating ground. Someone came up with a, a product called Center Pivot, so I think everybody knows what a Center Pivot is, especially when you fly over America, those round circles that are a half mile in, in diameter. Um, and in the United States, there's 150 or 160,000 Center Pivots now. That really started in the Colorado, Nebraska area, where they had to figure out a way to irrigate undulating ground and pressurized sprinklers help distribute the water. So <clears throat> that was really the uh, the most prolific uh, uh, increase in sprinkler irrigation. In fact, it's still predominantly in the United States the the, the greatest form of irrigation there's somewhere around 20 million acres just in nebraska kansas colorado area that's uh, irrigated with center pivots then inge you you and i both know that uh, by the early 60s drip irrigation was developed in israel by a uh, an engineer whose name was Simba Blast. Simba Blast was a hydraulic engineer in Israel, and in his backyard there were six um, olive trees, and the, the olive trees were flood irrigated by uh, digging a little canal, and he had little hose bib where he would turn the water on and fill the canals up every once in a while, and after a while, he noticed that one tree was a lot bigger than the other five, and that yeah. was the tree that was located right next to uh, was located next to the hose bib that had a drip. It went there was drip. There was a leak. Yeah, drip, drip, and he said there must be something to this, and so <laughs> that's where drip irrigation started. That was late fifties, early sixties. Ingi, can we take, uh, we're going to take a short break. Okay, we're back with uh, Ingi and our wonderful guest, Carl, oh, Chris has a, I was 
going to finish my sentence, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. He, he's poking me, no, he's poking me in the arm. Watching on TV, so he's going like this to me. I just bumped my mic on. So <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, so Chris. I was going to say, you know, talk about odd applications for irrigation equipment. I was recently at uh, in uh, Germany at, at a new product, uh, a new uh, company that uh, Toro has just purchased, and I was in Stuttgart. I was at an application there. They are using drip irrigation strewn out among the green spaces between the runways to distribute diluted. Um, Propylene glycol, which is they which they use as the de-icing. de-icing. Yeah, the de-icing. The so, de-icing. Yeah, so they dilute it, put it in a in a tank, and then they distribute it on the grass in between the runways. It was fascinating to see. Land application of de-icing fluid at the airport. Another industry we didn't know about. There you go. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Chris. So keeping with our theme of the history and future of irrigation, Kurt, tell us a little um, about what what would you change about the irrigation industry? I mean, you've been in it 47 years, and like the commercial says, you've, you've seen a lot because, you know, anyway, I can't remember the commercial, but anyway, you've seen a lot of stuff. So, we can replay uh, it. <laughs> what, just, just what would you change? What would you change, Kurt, if you could, about the industry? You know, the, uh, the, the real issue that we've had uh, with irrigation um, is we have never put enough value into water as a resource. And uh, we are now, uh, the whole world is uh, using water at an incredible rate. And we're fast getting to the point where we aren't going to have enough resources to take care of people, and that's really tough. It's been frustrating to me for a long time why people aren't more aware of what water is, what it does, and how to best use it. And in our industry, irrigation, one of the things that we've never done a good job is to correlate the minutes on an irrigation controller with how much water is being uh, applied to a lawn. Uh-huh. And uh, the problem here is that um, when a contractor installs a system, he'll set every station time at 10 minutes. And uh, uh, the homeowner will come along and say, well, my, uh, my grass is browner than I want it to be, so if it's 10 minutes, I'm going to turn it to 20 or 30 minutes. Well, 15 minutes might have been the solution, but now we continue to use way too much water, and all we know is, well, my grass is green, so I must be using the right amount of water. Yeah. So the industry has never done a good job teaching people how to water correctly. Yeah, we have a lot of really great equipment, but it's the it's it's the human factor that uh, is still a big challenge. Yeah. So looking ahead, where do you think it's going? I, I've heard some people well, say that it, the only way we're ever going to really irrigate efficiently is if we take the human out of it. <laughs> um, well, uh, well, where I, do you think it's going? Well, Kurt, do you think that the that smart connect in the future smart connected products will help drive sustainability? 
I think there's some, you know, right now there are a lot of controllers on the market that are smart controllers. And what it means to be a smart controller is they kind of look at the uh, temperature, maybe solar radiation, and a few other things <clears throat> and predict how much uh, water is going to be needed uh, in the near future. I, I think that's a, I think that's an improvement. The fallacy with that is once you set up an irrigation controller, if you don't set it up correctly to begin with, the the controller is always going to be over applying water. Usually, usually when you when when would you would you say that I didn't mean to interrupt, but just just to clarify it. So the way I would I would view it, and I just want your opinion, is when you have a smart controller that does the solar radiation, the temperature, the rain, and such, that sort of tells you when you need to water, and then if you have some soil moisture sensors, that tells you how much to water. So you have a a, a, feed, a closed feedback loop to that. Yeah, I I, I think the secret to our industry is going to be soil sensing. And soil sensing is starting to get to the point where they're inexpensive enough that you can have an adequate number around the yard to measure a lot of different points in, in the uh, yard or golf course or wherever. And uh, I think that the more we can do with machine intelligence to get the human factor out of this, the better off we're going to be. Uh huh. So you do agree with that? That um, we really, you know, the human is not really involved in our thermostats either. We we set it at whatever for our homes, and the machine just makes it happen uh, to be at the right temperature. And we don't really fiddle with it and estimate, you know, how many BTUs are we using to get this um, 68 degrees in our home. So you think the same will happen with irrigation? That Something, some yep. other technology is going to be able to sense what we want and then make it happen rather than us figuring out what we need and making it happen. I, I think the development of, of sensors uh, throughout our lives are going to help us use things a lot more efficiently. You're absolutely right, Inge. Uh, keeping a house at the, right, at the right temperature, how many BTUs does that take? Uh, how many watts of energy does that take? Am I using too many watts? Am I using too many BTUs? Um, water. Yeah, we don't Same we don't thing. talk about that over the dinner table all that much, do we? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not it's not part of our conversation. It doesn't have to be because it's not necessary because there's a, a gadget that does it for us, right? I've been right. complaining about how much gas costs lately. <laughs> yeah, we do a lot of that. So, Kurt, anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, any insights? Uh, and, you know, your your activities with the Irrigation Association's History Committee. I think you published a book. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about that. Well, no, we didn't publish a book, but we do have a, a museum space that happens to be at uh, Fresno State because the collection of uh, equipment that we've made through the year needed to be put on display and uh-huh. at the... Uh, Water Energy and Technology has centered on Fresno State. Um, there's about uh, 60 feet of, uh, of glass case that uh, we display all of the old products and the development of irrigation along the, the timeline that we've been on. Kurt, do, okay. you, do, you, do you have pictures of those things? 
And the reason, do you have pictures of those? And the reason I'm asking, Chris and I were just talking a little while ago, we'd love to do a show on all those old things. And we broadcast in video as well. So I think it would be great for our audience if if we could get pictures of that and and have you go through and describe what those are. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I tell you what, the next time I'm in uh, Fresno, I'll uh, I'll open the cases up and uh, I'll take some uh, pictures also, do a little video for you guys and then maybe we can talk about next steps yeah i'm intrigued by those kind of things yeah that would be awesome i was uh, telling rob i've actually seen that case we were up there at cit doing some testing and i actually went to see it so it's it, it's fascinating it's right outside my office if hey. you can imagine. <laughs> did not know that <laughs> uh kurt i see another water zone show in your future um coming soon <laughs> to an audience near you <laughs> absolutely great well, Kurt, we, well, go ahead. Kurt, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, um, thank you for what you have contributed to the industry. Um, it's a, been an illustrious career, and um, this show will be on iTunes within a couple of weeks as well. If anybody would like to listen to it again or tell their friends if they missed it. Yep. So until next week. Okay, well, we appreciate well, it. Thank, thank you, Ingi, and I uh, look forward to doing this again. Very good. Thank you. All right. Good night. People, have have a great week. And remember what we always tell you, the most important thing you got to do this week is think, think blue. blue. Good night, good everybody. Night, everybody.